Can we pray, please? Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here. We thank you for the privilege of having your word. And we ask now as we open it that your spirit would teach us, show us your glory, show us our great need continually, and give us the grace to constantly come to you in faith, knowing that you're the all-sufficient all Savior. We give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, sorry about that. Well, this is our last, as been said, of our series on suffering. We're going to look at many different passages. We won't focus on one again, so it's a broad theology of suffering today. We're going to continue the idea of suffering and the Christian, and we said that in order to glorify God in our suffering, then we must come to grips with certain truths about suffering. And the first, as we said, just to kind of get us up to speed and remind us where we've been, the first thing we must realize if we're going to live a life to the glory of God in suffering is the reality of suffering. We must expect it. We must not see it as a stranger. We must see it as familiar. It's supposed to be here. It belongs here with us on this fallen planet. You and I will suffer a great many trials in our lives on this fallen planet. Some will be light, others will be massive and all in between. Some will be more mere annoyances like face flies and others will literally take your breath away to where you wish you were dead. We will suffer the trials that are common to all humans, speaking of Christians, we will suffer that which is common to all people, believer or non-believer alike. We will suffer sickness. We will suffer diseases. We will suffer from the tragedies of war. We will suffer poverty. Many of us will obviously know the death of loved ones. None of us are exempt on this, in this life. And it's good to remember this sentence that God does not promise his children a trouble-free life in this life, but he promises that he will be with them in the troubles of this life. The trouble-free life that you're looking for is in glory, but in this life he promises us trouble, but he promises to be with us in that trouble. I remind you simply of Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. God's presence sustains you through the darkest times. So that's just general suffering. Again, how will we glorify God in, in this life of suffering is to come to the realization of the reality of suffering. It is supposed to be here. And we will suffer the general sufferings that everybody suffers. But then to bring it more to a point, we mentioned how we will suffer the sufferings of Christ, which is the, to suffer as a Christian. We will also share, Christians will, with the sufferings of Christ. And to remind you, the unregenerate world is hostile to God. It opposes him and his people at every turn. This world is not our friend and is not here to assist us unto God. I think a lot of American Christians get that sideways. This world is not our friend and it is not here to assist us unto God. We will suffer for Christ, specifically for being faithful to Christ. 
In what way? Speaking the gospel in pursuit of sinners, you will be persecuted. For confronting our culture's ungodliness with the word of God. By loving our enemies according to the gospel. By constantly doing good in the name of Christ. The world, as it did to our Savior, will mock us. Will speak lies against us. Will speak evil against us with no merit. With no merit. We will be overlooked for job promotions. We will lose our positions. We will be kept from colleges and kept from universities. And you just add to it. Merely because we are followers of the Lamb. These are the sufferings of Christ. This is persecution for the sake of Christ. I, I, I want us to be prepared for it. I, I am not... wearing a tinfoil hat because <laughs> the Bible is full of this preparation and I think the American dream has interfered with the reality of Christianity. Suffering is real. It is a reality. Persecution for the sake of Christ is normal. It's, in fact, it's guaranteed for the saint. I remind you, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul wrote in Acts, or Luke did, concerning Paul in Acts 14.22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, now listen, through many tribulations we must, absolutely, enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 15, 18, Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This is why we should expect it. If we're going to live for the glory of God in the midst of suffering, we must come to the realization of the reality of suffering. It is supposed to be here. From the reality of suffering, if we're to glorify God in trials and tribulations, we must understand, secondly, the role of suffering. From the reality to the role, we must know that God is sovereign over them all and has a purpose in them. He is, for a fact, accomplishing His plan, and nothing can thwart that. These are not random acts of bad and violence and evil that just happen to come into a believer's lives, but these are events that have been weighed out and filtered through the loving hands of your loving Heavenly Father. Trials and tribulations are like a chisel and a hammer in the hand of a master sculptor. He wisely uses them to knock off the pieces that don't fit for what he wants. With just the right amount of pressure in just the right place, the master produces his goal. What was first in his mind is now coming to fruition. The rough piece of granite and marble is starting to take shape. It's beginning to look beautiful because that which is his goal is the likeness of his majestic, glorious son. He is through suffering in your life, believer, conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. His character is becoming yours under his governorship under his wise hand as he performs this in your life 
We also said these are things he's also doing through suffering. Last time we were together, and I'm just going to bulletproof fast. He brings these sufferings into our lives to perfect our faith, to purge our faith. He brings suffering to convince us that we are truly children of God. He uses suffering to make us useful in serving others. He brings suffering into my life to keep me from pride. And he hates pride. But he gives grace to the humble. He's fitting us for eternal glory, beloved. 2 Corinthians tells us that he's using these troubles to produce a greater weight of eternal glory. Hebrews says he's disciplining us as sons. And he only disciplines those whom he loves. So do you see how it changes, how you view the troubles in your life if it's from a father who's disciplining you because he loves you? He's using it to advance the gospel by giving courage to others. As you suffer well, you're giving courage to others who are watching. That's why you read biographies of the saints that have gone before us who have suffered greatly. Doesn't that make you just put wind in your sail? I recommend highly Fox's Book of Martyrs. I recommend highly any, any the, the Swan series by John Piper. Anything that deals with the biographies of the saints on whose shoulders we stand on. Voice of the Martyrs magazine is modern day persecution. Beloved, I would highly don't avoid those things, but pour into and see how God strengthens the saints around this world to stay the course, okay? Because we will have our time. We will have our opportunity. So then, to live for the glory of God through suffering, we must understand and be convinced of these things. That suffering, okay, is a reality. God has a role. He's sovereign in it. According to Philippians 1.29, suffering along with faith is a gift from God. And if it is a gift from God, as that text says, it's also the will of God that you suffer. In fact, 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God tells you that there is a suffering that is according to the will of God. And I say that to correct the wrong theology that says it's never God's will that his children suffer. That is not from God. That is a lie from the pit. And I'm here to stomp on that because that, talks, that knocks people off course. Because if you're taught that now that you come to Christ, you know nothing but blessing. What's the first thing you do when you don't have blessing? What's the first thing you do when you have a trial, a tribulation? God's not faithful. God gets the black eye. Not you. God does. But if you read the text, if you let the scriptures inform you and you start to see that suffering is a reality and there is a role in suffering that God is sovereign in it and he has a will and plan in suffering, it doesn't make you weaker. Suffering makes you stronger when you have right theology. When the Bible informs your thinking, it is God's will that you suffer. Trust me. Just ask every saint who's gone before you. Ask the Lord Jesus. Did he suffer? Well, of course he did. Now, with all that in our mind, how are we to respond? We kind of, we've been in and out of these things. We have the reality of suffering, the role of suffering. We're going to finish with the third R, the response to suffering. How to glorify God with our response. I'm going to start with a negative, okay? The response to avoid. 
Do we grumble and complain? Do we grumble and complain the first sniff of trouble? Discomfort. If we're honest, this is often our first response, isn't it? It's often our first response. We are unhappy because we think perhaps we deserve better. Look, Lord, all the stuff I'm doing for you, and this is how you pay me back, that kind of stuff. Or we just don't like discomfort, and, so, and we don't like pain, and we don't appreciate that God would give this to us. Do you remember the Israelites? Of course you do. Whom God rescued from Egyptian slavery. They're, they, they're a good test plot for us. God sent Moses to Egypt to tell the Israelites there that it's time to leave this place and to follow him out of Egypt into the promised land. The Lord was leading them, if you remember, a pillar of fire. Um, He was leading them to the promised land himself. He, God, Yahweh, was purposely leading them into places that didn't have water to test their hearts. And this was a trial, no doubt, a physical suffering for sure. The question that the Israelites had was, is the Lord amongst us or not? He told us to follow him, and he's going to lead us to the promised land. Is he amongst us or not? We've gone three days without water. Is he good? Can we even trust him? That was in their hearts and minds. Listen to the response as it's recorded in Exodus 17, 2 and 3. Therefore, the people, the Israelites, quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? If you remember, we're not to put the Lord to the test. So this is a great sin that the Israelites are doing and that they're questioning, testing, in the sense putting God on trial as to his character. But the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt, they said, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What did God do? Out of mercy, he provided water from a rock, miraculously, of course. His power on display, his mercy on display, because nothing's too hard for God. Now, that same group of people, not much longer, complained because they didn't have meat. All they had was this manna, freely given by God that they just had to go pick up, but it was manna from heaven. And they were dissatisfied with the manna from heaven. And they actually said that life was better being a slave in Egypt because we had all the melons and onions and leeks that we wanted. I doubt that's true, but they they are of that opinion that being a slave... And having the food you wanted is better than following God. Okay. Numbers 11.1 says this. Now the people became like those who complained of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And it's worth picking up the word adversity because it goes back to the Hebrew word raw, which has numerous translations in our English text. But here's some of the translations, uh, how this word's translated. The word raw is translated evil. Bad, distress, misery, injury, harm, calamity, wrong. That's just a few. This is obviously a trial. It's a tribulation. It's bad as opposed to good. It's adversity opposed to prosperity. So the Israelites in Numbers 11.1 became like those who complain of 
adversity, of evil, of, of calamity. Now, they're complaining against God, calling into question His character. How did God respond is very enlightening to us. It goes on to say in Numbers 11, 1, When the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Whoa. Now, before you say, well, that's Old Testament, that's that mean old Old Testament God. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, references this in 1 Corinthians 10.10 and says, Beware that you don't do the same so that God doesn't do the same to you. God takes very serious having his character called into question and called evil. He does bring temporal judgment against these Israelites for their complaining in the midst of their trial. Now, let's be clear, please. And we've said this in the weeks before, but God is both righteous and merciful. Praise God. He will carry out temporal judgments, but also so many times, as you and I can experience in our own lives, he withholds rightful judgment because he wants to show mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. If God treated you and I perfectly according to what we deserve, we'd all be dead. Would you agree with that? How many sins does it take to be judged by God? Right? But God spares us. And he's, he withholds because he's merciful and kind. Now, also think of this in our response to suffering and why we don't want to grumble and complain. There is complaining that's not sinful. I think Psalms would call them laments, right? Because the complaining is not calling into question God's character, but it's more based on faith. Lord, why do you not act according to your character and come and relieve and deliver us, you see? So that's not complaining against God and his character, but it is, it is somewhat being under the pressure of the trial. So listen to this real quick. Um, in Psalm 10, verse 1, this, this, this would be acceptable complaining, if you will. The psalmist, David, writes, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you, so to speak? Psalm 13, 1, David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Have you ever been in a trial and cried out to God and said, Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know that I can take more of this, Lord. Where are you? Where are you? I feel like dying. Give me breath. That's a lament. It's not complaining against God's character. It's not questioning his goodness. Perhaps you remember these famous words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a complaint. 
That's a lament. It's written in Psalm 22, but it's also echoed by our Lord on the cross. So there are complaints that are not unrighteous. But the wrong response to trials, tribulation, persecution, and suffering is to be grumbling and complaining against the goodness of God, like an Israelite. So then let us not be like them. Let's not, let's not grumble against God in prideful unbelief. But let us continue in faith and humble trust of the Savior. As incredible as it is, let's ask God for the grace to follow the example of Job, as was read earlier. Listen to just a few verses to remind you. At the last three verses of chapter 1 of Job, after that horrendous day where he lost everything, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You see what's on full display there is Job's love for God. That wasn't circumstantial. Even though he lost everything, he could praise God because of who God is. At the end of in the middle of chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, after he was struck with boils, Job, he says this, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we, listen to this theology, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity, raw, evil, bad, adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You see, a response we're to have if we're going to honor God is not to grumble and complain in prideful unbelief, but it's to be in a submissive continuation of faith. Now, that's general suffering there. Those are afflictions and physical sufferings. But now, even the suffering for Christ, persecution specifically, particularly for being a Christian. How are we to respond in this situation? We're to continue by following Christ in faith. We're not going to fall away or shrink back. Listen to some of these things. If you're coming to Christ and you believe the promises of the gospel and you yield and surrender, repent and believe, and you're, you, you're trusting Christ, and the first time you go tell somebody, it causes you pain. The natural tendency, of course, is to shrink back. It's, it's, it's to pull back. It's to stop speaking the gospel. It's to change my practices. It's to change my direction, even in my life. It's to stop going to church or stop, stop hanging out with those Christians because all it brings me is trouble. They mock me. They, 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 they make fun. But listen to this. God brings those things to your life, as we said earlier, to prove the reality of your faith. And our response, true faith's response, is to continue. But listen to Matthew 13. You remember the parable of the, the seed and the sower and the, the four different soils. In verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 13, the Lord says, 
the one on whom the seed, the word of God, the gospel, was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, to which we would all say, man, conversion, yes, shushing, right? Put him on the rolls, man. He's received it with joy. Yet he has no firm, firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when, now listen to this, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Right? To fall away is, is basically to mean to reject, to push off, to push away from me. It's to reject the word. It's to reject Christ. It's, it's not... It's a very, it's a very uh, tragic, it's a very, a very serious thing. It's not, it's, 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 this person's not saved, okay? This person never was saved, but is not saved. He's rejecting the, the, the truth. He's rejecting that which caused the affliction and persecution. In order to avoid the persecution, he's rejecting the word. That's what he says here. The seed in the good soil, if you remember just to the difference, he hears the word, he understands the word, he bears much fruit. He continues in the faith, following Christ, no matter the affliction or persecution, he patiently endures with Christ. Okay? So there's a, there's a great example of this. And if you would, please, could you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. Here's a a community of Hebrew Christians who have experienced persecution for their faith in the past, and there's a threat that this persecution will intensify. And they seem to be growing weary of the troubles, and their temptation is to pull back from following Christ and maybe blend back into Judaism so they, because they don't want to be persecuted. They want to get back into Judaism because it's a lot less trouble for them. If you were in Hebrews chapter 10, pick it up in verse 32. Look at this here. This is right where we're talking about. But remember the former days, he writes, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle, describing now those sufferings, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, obviously they're prisoners for their faith, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves, notice, a better possession, a lasting one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, beloved, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, perseverance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Verse 37, he finishes on down to 39. Notice, he says here, he says, Yet for a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 39, finally, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the persevering of the soul. Do you see... The wrong response that we're not going to have in, the, in trials 
is to grumble and complain at a prideful unbelief, and we're not going to shrink back um, because we 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 are we we are afraid of those who are coming against us. We're going to stay the course because, as this text said, we believe there's a great reward. There's a great reward for us to carry on. And since we understand the reality of suffering and since we understand the role of suffering that God has in that, we then understand that our response to glorify Him is to not grumble and complain, it's not to shrink back, but it is to continue in humble submission. Now get this. We're not going to complain. We're not going to pull back. But we're going to continue on in humble submission before God. Now this is, I think, very, very crucial because it's an attitude of the heart that the Spirit produces and is evidence of one's faith in Christ because it goes against our flesh. It goes against my nature, right? I'm, 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 I'm more like uh, Simon the Zealot than I am like Jesus Christ, and I need to be like Jesus Christ, and that is to be humble and submission to God the Father. Now, get this. Would our humble submission to God in the midst of trials, persecution shows up in our gentleness towards our persecutors. Okay? Um, Matthew 5, 43 and 45. Listen to these words. Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus says this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you with greater authority... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So our response to sufferings, persecutions, first, I'm going to use this verse to say, is to love those who persecute us, to love our enemies. Now, your first thought is, you're crazy, preacher. You're right, you're crazy. I know that's what it says, but it can't mean that. <laughs> right? Talk about testing whether you believe the Bible or not. Right? Love your enemies? Love your enemies. He goes on to say, why should you do that? So that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's evidence of your familiar relationship to God, is that you're like him in this way, to love those who persecute you. Our trust is shown in our gentleness toward our persecutors, and this saying, love your enemies. Luke 6, parallel to this, says it like this. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And then later on in the next verse, it says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Well, in the context of enemies and persecution, the mercy is towards those who hate you. Our response to persecution is to be like God, and it is to love them. And if we can boil down and say in a sentence for the lack of time here, sake of time, is love seeks to do what's best for the object. 1 Corinthians 13 would kind of explain that, right? Love is sacrificial. Love is not seeking the worst, but seeking the best. And we're talking about those who hate us. And I think this is important because I think that's going to increase. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I want to be prepared. 
And we may not be in these situations yet, maybe just minimal, but it's coming if we're, gonna, if we're faithful. And so I want to be prepared when it comes, that when it comes, my knee-jerk response doesn't take over, which is to bear my sword, right, and cut off his ear like Peter did. <laughs> Throw that thing away, Jesus says. You don't think I can call legions of angels down? Trust in him. Humble submission is the path that honors God in the midst of persecution. And so look at this, or listen again. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's amazing. We're to do the same. So for loving and praying, we're also to pray for those who persecute you. It says in that same Matthew 5, 43 text, not only do you love your enemies, but you pray for those who persecute you. And I don't think you would be praying, take them out, Lord, rip their throats out, destroy them, step on their neck, you know. If we're, if we're seeking to do them good, we will be praying that God would bless them, in particular, he would bless them with salvation. It's the testimony of all, the, of all those who've gone before us who had something written about them. They prayed for their persecutors. They prayed for those who lit the fire at the stake. Wow. That's amazing. So we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. I would say we're to, we're to seek their good, which is to seek their salvation particularly. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead giving a blessing, right? Now, Peter, that letter, First Peter, is primarily about saints who are suffering and it's calling them to submission to God. And in that context, this is part of our submission, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Those are words, right? But giving a blessing, those are words, Speaking a blessing to those who are doing us evil, to those who are insulting us in the context, flipping it around, and to those who are doing that, we're to give a blessing instead. And he goes on to say, why? For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called for this. Our Lord Jesus obviously did this perfectly. In 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15, Listen to the question that he asks. Who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, the first answer would be what? Nobody. Why would anybody go after you for doing them good? You see, who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Interesting choice of words, zealous, fire, right? Um, you are passionate about doing good. Who's going to harm you for you doing that? Well, the answer suggests nobody. But listen to the next. 
But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, so righteousness is parallel with good, you are blessed. You see, it's so, it's so contrary to, let's call it nature, to persecute someone who's doing nothing but good to you. But that is the fact for a Christian. We are those who are doing good. If we're following the Lamb and following God, we are doing nothing but good for our neighbor, right? If you're following God, you're loving your neighbor. You are, if you're following Christ Jesus, you are speaking His truth, you're seeking their salvation, you're doing nothing but good for them, and they hate your guts. That makes no sense. Other than it shows you the, the, the demonic influence, it shows that this is not normal. They hated our Lord without cause. Why would anybody hate the Lord Jesus Christ? All he did is went around and heal people and do good, as Acts 10 says. Why would anybody hang somebody on a cross like that? Why would anybody hate a Christian? Because they hate God, right? Because they hate God. He goes on to say here, who's going to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then he goes on with this admonition. He says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So the persecutors are coming against you. The call here is you're doing good. They're coming against you. Don't be afraid of their intimidation. Don't, don't fear their, their troubles they're bringing against you. And then he says this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord. Whoever is our Lord is the one whom we will fear. Whomever we fear is the one we obey. Don't put your persecutors on that pedestal. That belongs to Jesus Christ. And in the midst of persecution, you knock those guys off and put Christ there in your hearts. You set him as Lord, therefore you obey him, you see, in the midst of this. And so he goes on to say that always being ready to make a defense to everyone. What are they going to, listen to this, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Do you see, how do they know the hope that is in you? Because in the midst of the persecution and the pressure they're putting on you, you have set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and you continue to obey Christ in the midst of persecution, showing that you are resting in the promises of God and the promises of God is your hope. It's future-oriented. It's the salvation he's promised. And because you believe that, you're not responding in like kind. You're not, you're not tit for tat. You're not insult for insult, evil for evil. You're not even defending yourself in a sense because you're showing that your soul is to God's. And you're, that's how your hope comes to the surface in the midst of this persecution. He goes, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. Why would they ask? Because they see it. It's so evident. They're intrigued by it because it's not normal. Because they wouldn't be acting like that, right? They wouldn't be loving their enemy. They'd be fighting back. But you're loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you and because it's based on a future hope of salvation, knowing that God has your soul secure. And it, it draws questions from them saying, man, you're not normal. Tell me, what is... What, why such hope? What is your hope? And he says, be ready to give a defense for that. Apologetics, to defend that hope. 
you see. And he goes on to say this. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. Again, the Christian character in the midst of all of this is Christ-like gentleness, Christ-like respect, Christ-like kindness, right? It's amazing. That's to be humbly submitted to God in the midst of persecution. As we contemplate this, we are immediately struck, aren't we, by the the otherworldliness of this calling? This is beyond my natural ability, and yet I'm commanded to act in this fashion. That which we are being commanded to follow, this seemingly beyond limit. I don't know how Peter can think he can get away with this, right? To follow this. But all he's doing is calling us to follow Jesus Christ. Um, Could you please turn, if you're in Hebrews, last place I left you, would you turn to the right to 1 Peter? I want to show you something here. Peter's calling these believers and you and I to such a high standard, but he's going to use Christ Jesus as an example to encourage us. And this is really awesome. First Peter 2, if you picked it up in verse 18, he's going to start with servants, but he's going to apply this to all of us as he gets down here a couple of verses. First Peter 2.18 says it like this and following. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only, now look where he goes, it gets extreme here. Not only to those who are good and gentle, that's easy, but also to those who are unreasonable. Verse 19, for this finds favor, this finds grace. If, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Suffering unjustly. Verse 20 says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated? And you endure it with patience. You're only getting what you deserve, right? But, second half of verse 20, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay? And you still might be saying, that's crazy. I can't do, there's no way. Look at the next verse he gives as a pattern, our Lord. He says, for you have been called for this purpose. Wow. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. His response never was sinful. And look at 23. The response that we should follow is this. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Those are words. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now that last phrase there in verse 23. How do you know Christ kept entrusting himself to God? Can you see that necessarily? That takes place first in the heart, doesn't it? In the mind. I'm of this opinion. I'm of this conviction. I'm going to place myself under the care of something. Okay, under the care of God. To entrust is, is to hand myself over. It's to deliver myself over to God. How do you know that Jesus Christ did that, handed himself over? Look at verse 23 again. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to God. He shows that he's trusting God by his 
can we say, lack of response? (laughs) But then look at the first part of verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's how you know he entrusted himself to God. He, he submitted to the plan of God. He did not speak threats. He didn't fight back because it was the plan of God to lead to the cross. And he was in submission to his father, and it led to the cross. He was obedient unto death, Philippians 2 says, even death on a cross. That, that's the evidence that he's entrusted to God. Okay, That's the evidence that he's entrusted to God. He did not hold dear his life, our Lord. More important to Christ than physical safety was doing the will of his Father. In fact, in John, he says, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ did not hold dear his physical life, but he did hold dear doing the will of his Father. The Apostle Paul echoes the same things in Acts 20. We won't look at it, but you could read that. On your own in Acts 20 when he's talking there and he says, I do not hold my life dear to me. I want to fulfill that which God has given me to do, the ministry that's set before me. And if going to Jerusalem is going to bring trouble to me and even death, Paul says, I don't care. I don't hold my life as the supreme. I want to do that which God has called me to do. See, that's, he's entrusted to God. He's not complaining in prideful unbelief, but he's, 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 he's setting his soul to God's care, proven by his obedience in the midst of sorrows and suffering and persecution. If you're still in 1 Peter, would you go to 1 Peter 4, please? And notice the connection here. Because our Lord is the one who's on display in chapter 2 that we just read. But look at where he comes to here in verse 19. Just the last verse in 419. Notice what he says. Therefore, in conclusion of what he said before here about suffering for Christ. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. To entrust is to set aside unto someone's care. It's to take something and put it over here and saying, here, would you watch this for me? This is saying that those who suffer according to the will of God, we shall hand over our souls. And notice to whom? To a faithful creator. Interesting that God is mentioned here as the creator, faithful creator. What's the implication or what comes to our mind when you see this as opposed to the righteous judge, the creator, the all-powerful, the eternal one, the one who spoke into existence all that there is and the one who sustains all by his word, by his grace and goodness. And he's, he's the provider, he's the sustainer, he's the omnipotent one. This is the one who's faithful to care for your souls. Now, how do you know in verse 19 that a person in their mind and heart has indeed handed over their soul to the care of a faithful creator. Look at the last phrase, verse 19. In doing what is right. In doing what is good. The very thing that brought about the persecution in 1 Peter is the doing of good. That very thing they're going to continue to do, which proves that they are entrusting their souls to God's care. 
into your care, into your hand. Receive my spirit, Lord. Right? Who better to talk of these things than Christians? Amen? This is not conversation that a lot of Christians talk about, but we should. Because we're all going to die. And Lord willing, it'll be for righteousness. <laughs> right? And so let's prepare ourselves for that which is coming, I do believe. And so those who suffer according to the will of God, entrust your souls. Trust God with your soul. The most precious thing you have is your soul. Entrust it to him. How do you show it? By obeying him, being faithful to him, to do good, keep doing good. Even though it causes trouble, keep doing good. Keep doing good. Now, finally, with a few minutes here, we're not going to grumble and complain in prideful unbelief. We're not going to shrink away. We're we're going to submit to God and continue faithfully serving him and following him by loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, by seeking their good, seeking their salvation. Lastly, just for today, the last thing I want us to focus on on, on a, a response that honors God in the midst of trials, suffering, and persecution is rejoice. We will rejoice. This is fascinating. Can we go, please, to Matthew 5? I want you to see this. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus, here's the Beatitudes at the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, the Lord Jesus. And he says in chapter 5, 10 and 12 is where I want to draw our attention. This is just amazing stuff. But listen to and look at verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed... Continuing his beatitude, and here's his last one. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed is the idea of happy. Happy, in a state of happiness, are those who have been hunted, persecuted. Notice, for the sake of righteousness, for doing what is right, obeying God. Why are they in a state of blessedness, verse 10 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it is giving evidence that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. That would make me happy. I'm happy with that. He goes on to say, please, look at what he says. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. I don't usually put those things together, right? But he's doing this. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Notice, because of me. Not just for being an idiot, (laughs) being a jerk, you deserve those things, but for being a follower of Christ, for the sake of Christ, they insult you, persecute, lie about you, do evil against you. He says you're blessed when it's for that reason. Why? Well, continue to verse 12. This is fascinating. Here's the command. 
Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's, he's saying you are to respond this way because of the crowd you are being associated with. The faithful Old Testament prophets were treated in the same way, so therefore rejoice. Don't see this as something strange or something that you're being hated by God. This is actually sorting you off from all of the rest of the world to say you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Wow. He says the command in verse 12, please, is rejoice. Sounds of joy. But the second word is just even gooder, right? Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Now, this is fascinating. Now listen, listen to this. If you get nothing out of today, at least get this, right? <laughs> be glad comes from uh, a Greek compound word, two together, two words together. One means to jump, and the other means to have joy. Okay, now get this. Be glad is to exult. It is to be filled with great joy. It, is, it speaks of extreme gladness. Wow. It, it, it comes from, again, this word joy and the word jump or gush or leap or spring up. It means literally to jump much or leap for joy, skip and jump in happy excitement, and so to be exceedingly joyful, overjoyed, and exuberantly happy. Are you kidding me? But that's the word he uses. I'm going to have to listen to my Lord. Get this now. The idea is this person shows excessive ecstatic joy by leaping and skipping. In Acts 3, do you remember the guy that was crippled in his ankles and Peter said, rise and be healed? How was his response? Do you remember? He was walking and leaping. I think they made kids' songs about it, right? He's walking and leaping and praising God. That's the idea. That's the idea of the word. That same word's used in 1 Peter 1, 6, coming off the heels that you are eternally secure, protected by God for a future salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, even if now you need to suffer a bit. That's the same word. Let's get this. So when you contemplate your eternal security and your soul's protection in God, it is to produce in you such a welling up of joy because that never can be lost. You see, this is saying here that if you are persecuted for the sake of Christ, you too shall leap with joy because what it's giving evidence of is that you belong to God in the kingdom of heaven. How great must the kingdom of heaven be if it's to produce that kind of joy in the midst of horrible things? That's what he's saying. It goes beyond reason. Praise God. Praise God. And a lot of Christians don't like this. I don't care. They need to shape up and get in line, right? We all act like persimmons eating lemons and following Christ is, is like going on a funeral dirge. No, man. Exuberant joy is characteristic 
of a Christian. That's awesome. That's awesome to me. <laughs> Notice what it says. Verse 12. Rejoice continually. Be glad. Be exuberant. Overjoyed. For your reward in heaven is great. Now think about this with me. If you're in the midst of being persecuted for being a Christian, according to our verse 12, what is the instigator of this response of joy? What is it that you are convinced of in verse 12? Is there's a future reward. There's a future reward, it says. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. It's mega. It's mega. If I believe that, I will then respond in rejoicing and exuberant gladness. Wouldn't I? Apparently. Apparently. One last place. 1 Peter 4. Listen to this. In 1 Peter 4, 13, listen to what he says. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the command follows, keep on rejoicing. To the degree, to the measure, it's a comparison, that you share, it's a root word, koinonia, and have fellowship, share in common the sufferings of Christ, to that degree... The command then is to keep on rejoicing, continually rejoicing, followed in verse 13 by so that the result also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That's interesting. Look at the connection between rejoicing present sufferings and rejoicing in future glory. He says, if you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ now and enduring the sufferings and persecution and you are rejoicing now in the midst of trials and suffering, that will only assist you in the future when it says there, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. And there's our word of exuberant joy. That makes sense. If we're rejoicing now when it's hard and tough, what will be the joy when I'm in his presence? And this says the revelation of his glory. Apocalypse is the, 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 the un, removing the shroud, taking away that which covers so that I can see in full view the glory of the Lord. The radiant perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be there. It'll be so exhilarating because sin will not be there. And the, and, the, and the fruit and the work of the Spirit and a fully redeemed, resurrected person with no hindrance. Think of the exuberant joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. You will be there. So you begin to practice now in the midst of suffering for his name so that when you get there, you have full unleashed soul and spirit to rejoice in Jesus Christ. 
Oh, my. I sure wish Christianity was more exciting. <laughs> I don't know what else people are looking for. Well, since you like that one, let me give you... I'm serious here. Listen to this. Since I got... You might send me home. Never ask me back. I'm going to get all I can get out of this thing. Um, <laughs> where am I going? Oh, listen to this. Second Thessalonians. I want you to... This is so... It's stunning. This is in our, this is in our day planner. It's in our calendar. Because God put it there. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks along these same lines, but it's, it, this future, listen to this. He says in verse, no oh boy, 9, um, verse 7, verse 5. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment, persecution is. So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Leave vengeance for God. He will take care of these things. Verse 7. And give relief. While he's, while he's afflicting in 6, he's giving relief in 7 to you who are afflicted. To us as well when, timing, the Lord Jesus will be revealed uncovered from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Dealing out, he will be, in verse 8, retribution to those who do not know God and, do not, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But listen to the next verse. And when he comes, Jesus, to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Do you get that last verse? He's coming to, to be glorified in his saints. In the picture here, it's like a theater. It's like a, a movie. And coming to be in the presence of all his glorified saints is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's coming to be marveled at. It's the one of the purposes of his coming, based on the text, is that you and I would marvel at him. To marvel at him. No longer the, the Son of God in humiliation, but the Son of God in exaltation. Glory that's unmatched. Glory that cannot be limited. Glory that cannot be fully contained. Glory that cannot be fully described. And we will be there. And there will be such joy. Such joy. Unbelievable joy. Hmm. It's just amazing to me. Beloved, when you are persecuted for Christ, don't complain. Don't shrink back. But press on in faith in humble submission to your Lord. Love your enemies. Pray for them. 
Seek their good, not their harm. Seek their salvation. Because how you and I respond assists the gospel because they're going to ask the reason for the hope that is within you. In Acts 5, if you remember, they were flogged, the apostles were, because they were preaching Christ. And Gamaliel said, why don't you just beat them a bit? <laughs> so they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And the next verse is fascinating. They didn't shrink back. They didn't go hide in a hole. And every day and in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They understood their eternal soul was safe with Christ, that the presence of Christ is in their future, and that is their hope. They were convinced that nothing could separate them from the love of Christ the love of God in Christ. They were convinced of that. They were convinced of his love for them. He was they were convinced that this is producing a greater weight of glory. One testimony here from history. Michael Sattler, Germany, 1500s, Anabaptists. Michael and his wife were raised in the Catholic Church but then got saved from Luther, listening to Luther. And they became preachers of the true gospel and therefore uh, marked enemies of the Catholic Church in the 1500s in Germany. He was charged with denying transubstantiation. That's the physical presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He was charged with denying that infant baptism saves. And he was charged with marrying getting married after taking monastic vows. He was brave and bold. He left a prestigious position in a monastery to follow after Christ. He infuriated the Roman Catholics enough that when they, when they put him to death, they cut out part of his tongue, then tore his body with tongs seven times on the way to the place of execution. None of this stopped him from praying for his guards. And even the judges who had ordered him to stop speaking could not stop him. His obstinance infuriated his executioner enough that he refused to put the bag of gunpowder around his neck. That was supposed to make death come faster. And when he was burned, he was burned without that. And then these words. Instead, he died slowly praying and singing praises to God, right? I think he understood the reality of sufferings, and I think he understood the role of suffering, and he certainly understood that the response that honors God is one of submission to him. Beloved, then let us patiently endure the trials and tribulations and persecutions that are coming our way. To do so, let us be settled in our own souls of the reality of suffering the role of suffering, and let us plan to respond in a way that honors him, which is not to grumble and complain, not to shrink back, but to submit to God 
and continue in faith following him to love our enemies, pray for them, seek for their good, seek for their salvation, and rejoice. Let them hear, let them hear your joy. In England, the dissenters, the nonconformists, these are the ones that broke off of the Church of England because of the Church of England's corruption. And they wanted to return to the gospel. But this was considered treason in the 16th, 17th century England. There's a, a hymn I'd like to read to you. It's short. By a famous hymn writer named Isaac Watts. His papa was arrested for being a gospel man. And many were also arrested. And so young Isaac Watts experienced this. And so he writes this hymn in 1724. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I, must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of heaven that are ours who believe. And I ask, Father, you give us the grace to patiently endure through all kinds of trials and tribulations and persecutions. Remind us, Father, of the reality of suffering, convince us of the role of suffering, and convince us of the response that brings you glory. We'll give you all the glory, for you are worth it all. In Jesus' name, amen.